millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsblog 20 podcast series in which we celebrate 20 years of Arsblog by talking to a guest about a calendar year of the site's existence between 2002 and 2022. The year in question is 2021. With me to discuss it all from the Arsenal Vision podcast, it is Elliot Smith. Hi, Elliot. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. You are clearly a glutton for punishment, having picked 2021. Yeah, it wasn't just foisted upon me. I actually chose it. I do want to start, though, just by saying congrats to you on the 20 years. It's it's a fantastic accomplishment, and uh, it is a credit to your quality and longevity. And I, I can just about remember listening to the very first episode. Uh, I was obviously 16 years old at the time, um, you know, just a young a young kid. And and now, you know, in, in my mid 30s, obviously, I'm uh, still enjoying your podcasting. That is good. I'm glad to see that you've grown up with with our blog all these years. Well, I can see we're on video. I, I don't think other people will be seeing it, but the the gray in our beard belies the statement that I've just made. Yeah, that's true. I think most people uh, would have understood you were joking. There, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, uh, and thank you. For for being here and thank you for doing this. So 2021, like a lot happened, you know, I found over the course of doing these that, that you know, a lot of memories have come back, a lot of incidents and things that I have forgotten. But the excuse I have is that they were many, many years ago. And mm. I, I'm hoping that there might be one or two from this because a lot happened in 2021. So where are we going to start? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think the best place to start, you, you'll find this odd, is chronologically at the beginning of 2021 because mm-hmm. we find ourselves at the beginning of 2021 turning a corner, perpetually and forever turning a corner, Arsenal. Um, but, you know, we had hit such a nadir at the end of 2020 in that Boxing Day win. I know that's a 2020 t- topic mm. um, uh, against Chelsea. But really, I think the start of 2021 was a story of the club beginning to turn a corner that it had been needing to turn for a few years. The integration of Emil Smith-Rowe being one of the sort of principal developments early in 2021 and the continued reliance on Bukayo Saka, the arrival of Martin Odegaard. And even though he was only very, very limited in his, in his introduction and reintroduction to the squad, we see some Gabriel Martinelli return and like the core of what I think will be the future of this club and the direction of this club begins to take shape. We see the phasing out of Willian. We see a a movement towards what will become the direction in the transfer window to come in the summer. And so I think Mm. we saw maybe the first glimmers of Arteta finding a solution from a football standpoint in terms of tactics that worked, a 4-2-3-1 system that started to be more exciting, more dynamic in attack. Um, It wouldn't last the balance of the season in part because of injuries. And we can maybe come on to that. But so for me, the start of the story 
is the start of the turning of the ship, a ship that really had been pointed towards short-term fixes, towards trying to get back into the Champions League, trying to restore old glory, if you will, in the quickest, most expedient way possible, maybe now shifting towards a, a view of the future. And we see that with with the introduction of new young players and the, the continued reliance on young players. Yeah, I suppose the other thing to say is that the, the quickest, most expensive way, really, to try and get back into the Champions League. I think we can all understand, like, when you're a club like Arsenal that's been in the Champions League for 20-odd years under Arsene Wenger, you fall out of it. Then you fall out of Europe altogether, um, as as I'm sure we'll get to. But mm-hmm. But... You know, you have to change something. You have to put in plan uh, in place a plan to do things differently, to not make the same mistakes. And you know, I don't I don't want to talk about current things necessarily, mm-hmm. but we are you know in 2021, um, so it's not too far removed from where we are right now. And that emphasis on where we were going to go and where we how we were going to try and address the faults of the past, I think that's a, it's an interesting place to start. And look, those guys, when we talk about them now, Smithrow, Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, I mean, we're looking at them exactly uh, as part of, of the future. And even the Odegaard loan deal back in January 2021 was, was a surprise because he's such a high-quality player. The fact that we were able to bring someone like him and not a with all due respect to Dennis Suarez, even that was an indicator that maybe some of the thinking was changing. Yeah, I agree. And to the extent that we saw the signs of maybe, not to be a Pollyanna about it, but a bright future with younger players, maybe we also saw the dark clouds on the horizon of the relationship with some of the aging players. I mean, obviously, William started to be moved out of the squad, which was a nice development. I think everyone would agree. But we saw the disciplining of Aubameyang for the North London Derby, mm. uh, really a watershed moment. And that was followed by his bout with malaria, which was obviously a very difficult thing for the player and, and I think made it harder to evaluate whether there was an ongoing problem between manager and player, right? Because he was forced out due to illness. But that, that disciplining of Aubameyang, and to be fair, a really good result against Spurs in that fixture, mm. I think was was a moment that will mark in time in terms of what happens at the tail end of the season, uh, tail end of the year, calendar year, we're doing this as a calendar year, yeah. in terms of, of Aubameyang then ultimately just not being able to get on the same page with Arteta from a discipline standpoint and ultimately being moved out of the club. So we see the transition to younger players and, and a reliance on younger players and maybe the start of the challenge with really the player who would be the story of, of the beginning of this season as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, he's no longer with us. Um, and and <laughs> look, I think Arteta certainly has had his issues with players. I thought there were some interesting comments um, in the last couple of weeks regarding Aubameyang, but we're not here to, to really hmm. relitigate that entire Always happy scenario. to do it, if you like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know we could. It would be quite easy to do, um, you know, un- unthinking content. But we, we need to talk a bit more about um, the things that went down and things that happened in, in 2021. So what's your next pick? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that there are, so there's, I'm going to push the back just a little bit further what I think is really the biggest story of of the calendar year, maybe one that's been forgotten a little bit and stick with the football just momentarily. And I think there's the question of Arteta's performance in Europe because we wind up falling out of Europe, obviously, and don't have Europe this season. And maybe that will be a benefit that we use to get back into even the Champions League. Mm. But you know, without going back beyond 2021, you know, when Arteta first arrived, 
one of the first things he did as manager early on before the COVID break was get knocked out of the Europa League to Olympiacos. Mm. And we look at 2021 and, I mean, we very, very nearly crash out to Benfica at the first hurdle in the Europa League. Uh, took an Aubameyang late, late winner, <clears throat> I believe a header at the back post. That's right, yeah. If I remember correctly, mm -hmm. um, in the second leg to rescue that tie and get us through to Olympiacos, who winds up beating us in the second leg. Um, we then failed to beat Slavia Prague at home in the first leg of the next round and then batter them in the second leg. <clears throat> and then really what I think is the watershed moment of the the 2021 calendar year and the, the, fir the first the second part of that season that's in the first part of the calendar year, which is the failure to beat Unai Emery's Villarreal in the semifinal of the Europa League. Mm. Because I think it's fair to say that there had been a lot of positivity about our league performance up until that point. It was derailed to some extent by injuries to Kieran Tierney that had us trying to solve for that position, and we did it in weird ways. The decision to use Granite Shaka. Mm. There was the Emil Smith-Rowe false nine decision in the, in the Europa League semifinal. But the way we performed in that semifinal, and I think in particular the away leg, where I felt that Villarreal was really there for the taking, and so much so that Emery made sort of classic Emery substitutions in the first leg, very defensive, very fearful substitutions that kind of presented the game to us. We didn't take advantage of it. And it leaves me sort of wondering now, what do we have in terms of a, a coach at the European level? Because the Premier League level, it's mixed results, certainly. But when we look at the... the exit to Olympiacos in his first effort in that competition, the near exit to Benfica in the first hurdle, a rough progression past Olympiacos, and then the exit to Villarreal. I think you'd have to say that it's been it's been a rocky experience in the Europa League. And for people that were down on Mikel Arteta, who weren't as warmed by the post-boxing day resurgence, mm. they would point to that semifinal loss as a, a really glaring example of some mistakes made. And I, and I think it's open to interpretation. There was no, you know, the tyranny, the loss of tyranny, the loss of the strikers, um, you know, presented him with a lot of challenges, but that's, that's definitely a pin on the calendar for me in terms of something that I thought was a big moment. Yeah, I think so. And look, the, the first leg in particular, where we played Emil Smith Rowe as, as the false nine, yep. having never done that before. The last time I think we played a false nine was with Willian at Man City, maybe away at Man City or at home to Man City. I can't quite remember. It didn't really Another work. Another enjoyable recollection. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something interesting about this because, you know, realistically, there shouldn't really be a significant difference between what you do in the Premier League and what you do in Europe, in particular, I think the Europa League, you know, but but European football is a thing which I don't know why it sort of befuddles managers. It makes them do strange things. We've seen Pep Guardiola pick I was mad up, teams, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it's easy to say, you know, Pep and, and Mikel Arteta are obviously good friends and work together. So maybe it's just a question of that rubbing off in him. But, you know, some managers just don't perform the way that they should in Europe. I and mean, I think even Arsene Wenger was one of those. You know, he had some of the best players in the world at his disposal during a period when Arsenal were a dominant force in, in, in England but just could not translate that into uh, European dominance. And madly, our one appearance in the Champions League final came with a makeshift team, you know, a team that was sort of falling apart a bit. Some young players were beginning to come into it. So I don't quite know why there is that difference. But, you know, based on what we've seen from Mikel Arteta, you know, getting to a European semi-final and, and blowing it in that way was, was disappointing. Ultimately, I think Unai Emery gave us a... 
sort of a get out of jail free card in a way in terms of how we viewed that because you know had United gone on to win it we might have thought well we could have done them in the final uh, and thankfully they didn't and actually the horror of facing United in a European final having just played Chelsea a couple of years previously yeah. uh, you know I'm not saying I want us or I'm happy that we went out, but I do wonder if, you know, that would be too much to take to lose to Chelsea, to lose to Man United in a final. We could easily have won, you know, but that possibility is there. But yeah, there there are, I think, questions to ask. And, you know, maybe there are questions that a, a young manager can answer better after a couple of years in the job. And hopefully we're back in Europe next season and, and we can see some we can see some progress there from Mikel Arteta. Yeah, and I think what I'd say <clears throat> is it all points to really for me one of the cr- one of the critical questions to be answered about this manager, and that was raised during the calendar year essentially, which mm-hmm. is I think he is a manager who, when he has had the full complement of tools at his disposal from a squad standpoint that he really relies on and ca- counts as his critical pieces, mm-hmm. we have seen some really good football and some really good results. I think what we've seen from Mikel Arteta is a struggle to cope with with any kind of squad-related challenge when when he doesn't have... You know, the, the excuse has been, well, there's been red cards, there's been injuries, there's been players unavailable, but that is how it works. And when he's had his choice of team to put out there, I think we've seen some really encouraging things. But as we saw at the tail end of that season in 2021, both in the league and in Europe, mm. when a piece was missing, I don't know that he reacted to that in the best possible way. Could was there a better solution than the Shaka at left back solution? Yes. Was there a better solution than Emil Smith Rowe? Yeah, I mean Bukayo Saka would have been an option. Yeah. Was there a better solution than Emil Smith Rowe at false nine? And so, you know, it, you can be sympathetic of Dav Luiz and Shaka getting red cards or players being out with injury because those are challenges, but I'm not sure they're challenges he's always handled mm. in the best way possible. So one of the storylines for me coming from that season, one of the reasons I think we failed to qualify for Europe and failed to get past Villarreal was that the good work we had done post-Boxing Day was undone, yes, by injury and suspension, but also by maybe a lack of finding the best solutions under those circumstances. And, you know, that, yeah. maybe that's the next hurdle for this manager. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the the Xhaka left-back thing, um, like I, I could see how you might do it for a game, two if you're really pushed. But because we had to move so many other pieces around, and at that point, Granit Xhaka, uh, and I think to some extent, he still remains an important part of Mikel Arteta's midfield. So when you don't have it, you've got to you've got a guy who's not really a natural fullback playing at fullback. Then you've got a sort of hybrid Xhaka, whatever guy that Danny Ceballos was supposed to be. That didn't really work. And yeah, I mean, I think there was a better solution there. Um, I'm sure he had his reasons, but uh, in the end, they didn't turn out to be, um, yeah, didn't turn out as well as we would have liked. Yeah. And so I think the end result is you wind up with a 2021 that at the midpoint, the end of that season, mm. going into the summer, you, you have a team that now clearly needs a change of direction. No Europe for the first time in decades. An, a group of older players that weren't able to get you where you needed to go and a group of younger players that look like a bright future. And the club had to decide whether to pivot or not, and they pivoted, and we'll, we'll come on to that. But before I think we come on to the summer business and the change of direction for the club, really, we buried the lead in a sense because the biggest story from 2021 in football generally and for Arsenal is the announcement of the formation of the Super League. Yeah. And 
I think the Super League has been talked to death, so it's very unlikely that I'm going to say anything right now that I haven't said, that hasn't been said, that hasn't been written, that hasn't been covered. But it has sort of become a distant memory in a way because the news cycle is so short, because memories are so short these days, because we're on to the next thing so quickly. But I think if we're not going to talk about it necessarily for what it meant in the moment, we can talk about it certainly as a harbinger because you look at the way the game is progressing now there's another tier of UEFA competition, the Nations League. You look at the the money coming into Newcastle. You look at FIFA wanting to go to a World Cup every two years. And there's too much football and there's too much money and there's too much disparity. And it is becoming impossible to see how the current structure can withstand all of the different strains and stresses that are on it. Hmm. Um, you look at the, the fees that are going to be paid for some players and you know Newcastle's only going to drive that further up and the wages that are going to need to be paid to secure players. And if the Super League wasn't the right thing in the moment, and I think we all agree it was not the right thing and not a thing any of us wanted, it was certainly, I think, a at at best, a trial balloon mm. to to kind of, and I mean, they, they gauged pretty quickly what the, what the reaction was going to be to that, but I don't think we can pretend that the status quo is rock solid now in the wake of that. That was a stress test. We passed it, but I don't think it means that it's behind us. So... What it means for the future of Arsenal, what it means for the future of football, I think is still a critical talking point that has sort of just been dismissed. Yeah. I mean, just to put it in context for, for people, um, if they don't quite remember exactly what happened on a Sunday night, Arsenal announced that they were going to be one of the 12 founders of a new midweek competition called the European Super League. There was a joint statement which went out on our website and a number of other websites. I think clubs just slightly tailored it to their own, um, you know, official websites and brands, etc., etc. And there was uproar and a furore. And in two days, two days later, Arsenal released a statement to say that um, they were no longer going to be part of this. They're, they were going to withdraw. Um, and they said, um, it was never our intention to cause such distress. However, when the invitation to join the Super League came, while knowing there were no guarantees, we did not want to be left behind to ensure we protected Arsenal and its future. And Look, it's very difficult not to be cynical about this because the the talk of a European Super League was nothing new. It had been going on for years and years. The idea of it had been floated here, there, and everywhere. Um, people were objecting to the sporting structure, no relegation, no peril. You know, the thing that makes uh, English football and football in general so good is the threat that you can, you know, go down if you're not good enough. All of those things stripped away, games against teams that you don't really care about. You know, there's no rivalry if you're going to play you know, Juventus beyond the fact that, you know, they might call it the Vlavic Derby or whatever the fuck, you know. But but the idea that, that somehow Arsenal as an institution were sort of blindsided by, ooh, look, an invitation for the Super League. We better join that. Otherwise, you know, we could get them. You know, I don't... I don't necessarily buy that, you know, and as somebody, um, you know, based in the U.S. and you know the way U.S. sports operate, and you know the way that U.S. sports owners operate and, and uh, Stan Kroenke um, has a track record of lots of things. The idea that this was just something out of the blue that we had to get on board with or, or we were just not going to be involved never rang true to me. Yeah, I think what also is a big 
part of the storyline though then is the reaction right because yeah it, it was a really interesting juxtaposition you have an empty stadium with a game taking place inside with no fans and outside you have this really this massive um protest yeah of people together and you know setting aside your feeling about the protest taking place during the pandemic and, and all that and whatnot i mean just the there was a real unifying impact and i think it is so rare and, and i'm not going to suggest that i speak for everybody or that this did speak for everybody i'm sure there are people who you know supported the super league there's a, there's always going to be people on both sides of any issue but by and large i thought that the arsenal community came together in a way that is fairly rare and dare I say, nice to see. I mean, you'd like to see it happen for reasons other than the existential crisis affecting the game and your club, but it was it was really interesting in a really strange juxtaposition. I remember doing a live stream and putting up the videos of the protests and it, just something about these eerie, empty stadiums, this, mm. sort of, this sort of simulacrum of football that was taking place inside empty football grounds while a very real and vibrant protest was happening outside the ground was was such a stark contrast and i think it sent such a powerful message so really a moment that i think was incredibly important one that i think the outcome was in the best interest of football and the football club but i am absolutely reluctant to say that it's behind us mm. and I, I think it is a moment that we will continue to come back to as, as football confronts this issue again sure no i think so and, and another thing i think we should mention when we talk about the super league was the fact that it was one of those rare occasions where across football there seemed to be consensus uh, among fans of the clubs who were involved and the clubs who weren't involved. Like Arsenal fans hated it. Even Chelsea fans hated it. You know, Liverpool fans hated it. You you can put aside these, these rival, rivalries and I think there was something quite instructive about the way it all fell apart so quickly, so quickly because there was a strength in the unity of football fans. I don't just mean Arsenal fans. Mm -hmm. I mean fans of all these clubs, whether they were involved or not, who were saying, we don't want this. We do not want this. And that power, I think, is something that I know some of the football supporters associations were, um, you know, the uh, the FSA and those kind of people were very keen to, to try and remind people of because... The, the Super League was a massive issue, but there are smaller day-to-day issues that affect all football fans, like kickoff times and moving fixtures and, you know, the price of travel and all of that kind of stuff, which affect all football fans. And if there was a little bit more consensus uh, and a little bit more unity between fans, perhaps there might be a way of getting more done but, you know, we know what the game is like. We know what fandom is like. We know what it's like online. It becomes very, very tribal very quickly unless it's something huge, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I don't consider myself a naive person. And maybe this is naive. But I do think it was a rare and sort of encouraging moment of fan power, mm. of, of supporters being able to influence an outcome. Uh, you know, I think that there is a sense that the fans have almost become an afterthought. Certainly the fans at the ground have become an afterthought. And literally there weren't even fans at the ground for, yeah. for you know, this calendar, the beginning of this calendar year that we're discussing. And, and yet this was a moment where I do think fan slash, you know, supporter power and influence w- was an important factor. Maybe that's naive, but it certainly felt that way to me. Yeah. Yeah. A big story and one which kind of like not fell by the wayside, but I think the fact that it did come and go in a, in a flash almost, 
um, it did fade away pretty quickly. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I think some of that too is just due to the fact that like, what do we love most? We love football, and there yeah. was still a lot of football, and and a summer where you know England goes to a, a European final, right? Um, you know, a major tournament final is a good antidote. And I, you know, I think I am a club football fan. I am not an international football fan. I have always said I'd be fine if international football just went away. But I found very weirdly the Euros to be an antidote to what had been a very disappointing, mm. stale, stultifying, sort of uh, hard to enjoy club football season because at the Euros we saw fans back. And at yeah. the Euros we saw storylines we could get behind. The summer of Saka, the the inflatable unicorn moment, right? Yeah, 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 that, yeah. that became a meme. And like, so... I do think that in a way these clubs got lucky because they were delivered a really beautiful summer tournament that restored. And I mean, obviously there was one very scary medical moment that we were all familiar with that, mm. that started off tournament and thankfully ended okay. But like, um, yeah, I think that that summer tournament got a lot of people back on board with football at a time when maybe there was, there was some, it was becoming a little decrepit. Sure. People, you know? Yeah. Look, yeah. we, 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 the the buzzword or the catchphrase during the pandemic was you know without fo- without fans football is is nothing I don't think it's nothing it's not nothing but it's not the same by a long shot and you're right to point out the return of fans and the atmosphere generated by people in stadiums makes such a big difference to the spectacle not simply to those people inside the stadium but to you know the millions and millions the majority of people who watch games on television and I think as well to the players themselves you know in some ways uh, I'm sure the players became quite used to it but also it must have been extremely strange for them during that period when you're used to playing in front of 50 60,000 people and all of a sudden you you know you've got nobody there apart from staff members and people can hear everything you're shouting on the pitch. And that's weird as well. And like it, I obviously through the pandemic, we've all had our various um, issues to deal with our our own struggles, but the return of fans to football in 2021, um, it's sort of reinvigorated something in, in how you experience the game and your club season and your own club and everything else. Like a lot of what happened during that period is kind of a blur to me. If you ask me games from 2020, 2021, like they don't, they don't resonate. They don't stick in the mind. There are some, obviously some moments, but like there's other games I look at the results of and go, I, I barely remember that game at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And, and, in a way, I think the return of fans then as the club season started, this club season, mm. really became a lifeline for Arteta and for the team in a way because I think had fans been there the whole time, had it had it been taken for granted the way maybe we, we do take football for granted, I think some of the results, some of the performances might have been met with a different reaction. But there was a clear connection between fans and team at the start of the season at the Emirates that I do not think reflected the state of the club, no Europe, some stale performances. I think it was an appreciation to be back, an ability to support the team, to mm. really re-examine what it meant to be a supporter. And so, you know, for myself, first time ever attending a game at the Emirates Stadium, my first time back, uh, you know, in London in over 20 years or in, in about 20 years to attend the Palace game. Unfortunately, not the result I would have hoped for, but I like to think spurred the resurgence that came Of there. course, um, of course. And we thank uh, you I did for get that, to see yeah. a late equalizer, which was fun. And like... There definitely was a powerful connection between the, the the club and the fans, and 
And it is it is something that I'm not sure would have been felt as keenly had they been there the whole time through the prior seasons and through some of the ups and downs. And so the return of fans is obviously a big storyline. I think, you know, I'm, I, I touched on the summer. I do think one of the big storylines of the calendar year, the summer of Saka, of course, and, and becoming, you know, really a, a, an ever-present in the England squad and going all the way to the final, what he suffered after missing that penalty and the love and support he was shown by, to be fair, the larger football community in many ways, but but the Arsenal community particularly, the way he's come back and been a real leader and a star for us, having gone through something that, I mean, as a 19-year-old, as a, as a young, mm. really as a boy, what, what could have crippled the career of a, a, a lesser person and, and showing his character has been immense. And it really heralded a change for the club generally because the club finally, finally, finally took its medicine and said, this business of trying to plan for the short term has to stop. There was massive investment. I sort of wonder, you know, we did a we bought we bought a lot of players at a big set of fees without really selling much this summer. And I do wonder if a little of the pressure to do that came from the backlash towards KSE from the Super League, just something that mm. was in my head is did they have to sort of win back the appreciation of the fans and did they use the summer as a chance to do that? But the decision to go with Ramsdale and White and Tomiyasu and Odegaard and Sambi and Tavares, and you look at the core now and the players are 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and there wasn't a Willian type signing. You know, I mean, granted, I think some people might have preferred to see Shaka move on, you know, but aside from that, there was a real clear pivot towards getting younger, planning for the future. And and it's actually probably paid dividends a little quicker than we might expect in the sense that we are now in a in a real top four race. Some some people might say more so, some people might say less so. But mm. I, I think that change lead, left us at the end of 2021 in a position where whatever happens this season, and even with this manager, the club is now positioned, the squad is now positioned to have a very bright future. You know, we get so attached to managers and fixate on managers so much. But it is your squad where the balance, you know, the majority, overwhelming majority of your resources are focused. You can sack a manager, you can't sack a squad. Um, even though we've tried with <laughs> Aubameyang and Klausina. <laughs> you know, we, we know the names. Um, but, but the fact is, the squad is now positioned that whatever happens from a managerial standpoint, for better, for worse, you can see a path to a very bright future. And I think it's been a while since we could look at the squad and say, the direction you know is is pointing up clearly pointing up and i certainly feel it is the the summer is so interesting when you look back in it now because there were objections to some of the players that we were going to bring in ramsdale yeah ramsdale is a case in point that nobody could see why we were going to spend that much money on a goalkeeper we actually you know the, nobody really saw goalkeeper as a big issue because Bernd Leno was a perfectly acceptable premier league goalkeeper not brilliant but you know it wasn't the biggest issue that anybody had thought um and i wonder as well if look i i, I think when you are planning for a future and when you're building medium to long term it is obvious that you're going to buy younger players and you're going to try and grow a squad that's relatively um, similar in age, that core group of players together, that just makes sense. But I also wonder if, and I don't think, I'm not saying this, that like they're covering their arses or anything like that, but in order to allow that to happen, you need some measure of patience or goodwill or understanding from the fans. And I think if you bring in six players of 26 to 28, if you're not, there straight away 
fans are they're just not going to have it. They're not going to have that. Whereas if you bring in the 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, whatever it is, and you add them to a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds that you already have, you know, even if on a day-to-day or match-day level you might get frustrated with some of the things that happen, you still can be relatively confident that this group is going to develop and make progress together. So um, I'm not saying it was a cynical idea to bring in players to buy time or anything like that, but but I think those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, granted, it didn't go the way we would have hoped, but a little sign of that is we kicked off the season against Brentford and it went really badly and Mm. we had the COVID absences. And ordinarily with those COVID absences, you would have seen people really upset and concerned and and angry about the lineup. But if you remember who was in that lineup, and really it was the the defenders that I think wound up being the problem, you know, guys like Pablo Marie, who who never had a shot. But like up front, I believe we had Martinelli in there and, you know- Balogun started, yeah. Balogun, yeah. And look, we now know that Balogun probably wasn't ready for Premier League level. But I saw a lot of people really excited to watch that team. Because if you're going to watch an Arsenal fail, I'd rather watch an Arsenal fail with Martinelli and Smith-Rowe and Saka and Odegaard. Well, Odegaard wasn't there yet. And, you know, Balogun, if it has to be, Mm. then Willian and Cedric. And, uh, you know, I I don't have to go through the names and pick on individuals. But I think the point is there was a readiness to support these younger players, the future of the club, Mm. whatever the result might be. And so, you know, I I don't want to be a Pollyanna. I don't want to say everything's great. But... I can look at the core of what we have and the strategy and direction we're going in now and at least feel really excited to see where that goes. Whereas maybe a few windows ago and a few seasons ago, Mm. I I wasn't so sure. And maybe to be fair, one of the reasons I did have questions about some of the buys we made in the summer is, look, as a club, you only get so much goodwill, right? You only get so much trust for a club that had signed, that had made some very major high profile mistakes in the transfer window. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I think trust was was at an all-time low. And I think they've certainly restored at least a little of that in terms of how they've reloaded the squad. So I'm I'm pretty excited about it, to be fair. Yeah, me too. Me too. And hopefully um, they can continue um, their progression and we can continue our progression as a club. And I think at the very least, you look at 2021 as, as you've said, like a watershed moment where they go, we can't keep doing this. Even though we've had to do a couple of things in 2021, maybe that we didn't necessarily want to do or didn't expect to do. But, you know, to to try and future proof and to sit down and to have a plan and to have a strategy. And um, I hope uh, I hope it works out well for them and for us and for everybody listening. Yeah. I mean, you know, the funny thing is it's such a tedious expression, the trust, the process thing. And it's become a Mm. meme. We signed a guy named Austin trustee, the process. Right. I mean, like we're literally leaning into trusting the process, but like. I think the reason it is a relevant phrase is that bad process can yield a good outcome, but you know usually doesn't. Mm. The point is that like I can't guarantee we're going to go on and win leagues and win champions or any of that, but I can at least look at the process now and say I like what the club's trying to do, and if I like what they're trying to do, you have my buy-in. You know, you have my excitement to go see how it turns out, and I think that that alone is a nice change from where, where we've been. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, look, thank you very much, Elliot. It was a pleasure reliving 2021. Some good moments, some not so good ones, but look, that's <laughs> football for you. Um, yeah, football and life. Uh, we'll leave it there, Elliot. Thanks very much. Congrats again, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks, man.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Elliot is on Twitter at Yankee Gunner, at Yankee Gunner, and of course, the host of the Arsenal Vision podcast, which I'm sure many of you listen to as well. Right. That is that for the year recaps from 2002 to 2021. We do have one more episode, though, which doesn't follow the same kind of format. I will explain it in that one, in the next one, which is also the last one of this series. And if you've blitzed your way through every episode to get to this point, thank you very much indeed, and we'll catch you on the next one. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.